Today's reading is from Luke, chapter 22, verses 7 to 38. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. And said, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, uh, Lord's love. Uh, thanks, Anthony, for reading that very long passage. I apologize uh, for choosing such a long passage. I hope the sermon today uh, will be able to uh, stay on point uh, because there's so much in the text uh, this morning that we just need to go into and allow God to speak to us. Uh, I, I just want to say, as I start off, I'm so, I'm so encouraged uh, by uh, your giving. Uh, if you go to the next slide here, I'm, I'm so encouraged by your giving that 
uh, to see all the gifts that you've donated uh, to the hamper program, to the three single moms and their kids. One of them's not even born yet, one of the kids, so that's coming next spring. So you can keep their families uh, in prayer. So whether you gave a clothing item, food item, gift card, or you wrote a prayer, or you prayed for the family, you wrote a Christmas card out to them, it's going out to them this, well, we're dropping it off to the organization this uh, Wednesday, and then they'll drop it off, I believe, the weekend afterwards. So um, pray with us uh, that this would uh, be a blessing to them and that they'll experience God's love. Uh, let's just pray uh, as we go into the word now. Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for who you are, uh, for your grace, for your goodness, for your mercy on our lives. And this morning, Lord, as we dive into your word, may you speak. Uh, may you speak words of truth into our hearts. May, God, may you cause a great joy, God, to burst into us. Uh, those of us that know you, uh, may we uh, be reminded of your love. For those of us that do not yet know you, God, may you cause us, Lord, to seek you, to sense a peace and a joy that only comes from you. So, Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you, God, that we can go into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is my mic on? Can you hear? Okay. I, I can't, I, it doesn't seem like it from my end. Uh, does anyone here know uh, what the term Renaissance man means? Anyone here? Renaissance man? Anyone heard of that term before? Well, Renaissance man uh, is a term uh, for somebody who, anyone, who excels in multiple disciplines. In multiple disciplines, a person with many talents. An example of such a person is Leonardo da Vinci, who I remember in elementary school, we took a, a trip to the Royal Museum in Victoria to learn a bit about him. Uh, born in 1452 in Italy, he's accomplished not just in painting, but in architecture, in engineering, mathematics, sculpture, geology, cartography, anatomy, music, botany, history, and literature. Masters in every single one of those disciplines. Simply put, da Vinci was a, was a genius. He was a genius. And I suppose we'll never know for sure, but much of da Vinci's work was really a pursuit of, of God, of an understanding. I try, I, 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 he's trying to understand this God that he was following. Da Vinci has been attributed to the quote, the noblest pleasure is the joy of understanding. The noblest pleasure, the joy of understanding. Joy of understanding what? And, and according to his faith, is really a joy of understanding of this God, which in his studies and his paintings, uh, so much of it attributed to his research and his dedication and his search for understanding this God. And when he got glimpses of this God, a little bit of his understanding, it sparked this joy. Da Vinci is known for painting the Mona Lisa, the Vitruvian Man, uh, Salvador Mundi, some of the most, world's most famous paintings, and perhaps this painting, the most, fam uh, most famous of them all, painted between 1498 and 1495, The Last Supper. The Last Supper, painted by Leonardo da Vinci on the con convent of Santa Maria del Grazie in Milan. And it's actually bigger than it looks. It's 15 feet by 29 feet, which is about the size of this back wall here. So it's a pretty massive painting that, that da Vinci did, uh, he, that he laid in this convent here. And a little bit more of an updated version, people have tried to remake it because it's fading quickly. But you see here that just the detail of the painting here, and this painting is said to be at the moment where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and the disciples burst out into outrage. The disciples burst out into outrage. You see Bartholomew here on the very left, 
looking over. It's like, what's going on here? James, the brother of Jesus, looking over. It's like, what are you saying, Jesus? And Andrew with his hands up. It's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Like, you know, I don't really understand. And then right there, Simon Peter, you see him between Judas and John. And you see the detail. He's actually holding a knife right there. Maybe the same knife that cuts off the, the servant of the high priest uh, later on. And Judas right in the middle, holding, clutching a, a sack of money in his hand. And also the full detail there. You don't, can't really see it right now, but he actually knocks over a salt, a jar of salt. Uh, which in that day is, means a bad omen. Something is about to happen. The details that you see here, John seems to just swoon. And they're like, oh, I'm going to faint. Like who? You know, John, the disciple that Jesus loves, like, who is it that's going to betray Jesus? Thomas sticks his finger up. I think it's the pointer finger <laughs> up at the moment. And this, which becomes Da Vinci's uh, key mark uh, uh, sign for, uh, uh, for questioning, uh, for, for having doubt and having questions about the faith. And James, uh, son of Zebedee, is holding Philip and Thomas back. <laughs> calm down, calm down. Hold me back, hold me back. What's going to happen here? And Philip is not really sure what's going on. Matthew is the tax collector saying, I don't know what he's talking about. Thaddeus is sitting on the far right, and he maybe he's looking at us. He's like, I actually didn't hear what he just said. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. Uh, could you fill me in? Simon the Zealot there is just kind of in, in question. What is going on here? The detail of what happens. And you see Jesus, right in the middle, kind of calm, and you might notice what, hap what, what happened to his feet. Well, apparently the people of the convent didn't appreciate this painting too much because if I go back a slide, they actually put a door frame, a doorway, <laughs> right through this picture. So Jesus' feet is missing uh, because they put a door there. But the point is this, that you see the, the illustration and the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the, and, and how delicate this painting really is, the details that da Vinci put in, into this this, this painting, you see just exactly the details that you see, that Jesus sitting right in the middle, the, the signs of three, and he's a perfect triangle, if you take out your measurements, a perfect triangle between Jesus' hands and his face. There's three windows. The disciples are seated in groups of three. Like all the intentionality that da Vinci put into this painting. Now we're in a series called Meals. That's a long intro. Uh, we're in a series called Meals. <laughs> with Jesus, which started in September, and we're in the last three sermons now uh, as we're ending uh, the, this series, where we've been looking at meals Jesus has been with, having with people, seeing and, and studying what God is saying to the people as he has these meals with them, how he interacts with these, these people. And we see here today that Jesus, he has a meal, a meal known as the Last Supper, that many people have questioned and pondered what exactly it looked like in that day. It was a meal that also has come to known as the Last Supper, but also communion, or also another term called the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word Eucharisto, which means Thanksgiving. Many terms for this, but there's also maybe another famous word name for this meal that's about we're about to study is the Passover meal, which in Judaism is rooted in what was recorded for us in the book of Exodus to remember Israel's captivity. Captivity in Egypt and how God rescued them when the angel of death swept over Egypt, killing all the firstborn sons of Egypt. For those that had the sacrifice and blood painted on their doorframe, the angel of death passed over them and saved them, allowed them to go free. The Passover meal is a significant moment in the biblical narrative and of Jesus' ministry. And we skipped a few chapters uh, since last week's sermon on Zacchaeus. Uh, Jesus has since entered into Jerusalem as king. Jesus 
has gone into the temple and he cleared the temple courts saying, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And before this meal, the religious authorities have already set into action a plan that Jesus needs to die, that Jesus needs to go. Knowing all of this, Jesus still sits and has a meal with his disciples, a meal which points to the death of Jesus, a meal that points to through his sacrifice, the giving of his body and of his blood, that we're able to receive new life. And this morning, I'm hoping we'll see this, that remembering Jesus gives us joy as disciples of Jesus. That this morning for us, that we would remember this Jesus, remember this Christ, remember his sacrifice, remember his body and his blood. I guess I should have done this last week when I was communing the sermon, what it made sense. But for us to remember Jesus, to get that, remembering him gives us joy. Why? Because I think this matters because it's possible that many of us are experiencing joylessness because of our forgetfulness. Our forgetfulness of who this Jesus is, how he has come, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, despite our circumstances, despite our pain and our suffering, God is with us, God is for us, God is still uh, here and present. And because what he has done, the Holy Spirit is alive in us, alive in you, to give us joy during this Advent season, during this Christmas season. Because being a disciple of Jesus, it's not always fun and easy, but it's always good. It's always good when you're with Christ. It's always good when you're with the maker of the universe. Verse 7 starts like this, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. In the very beginning of this text, as we learn about the joy that we have as, as Christ followers that we're reminded of, we see here that this place for the Passover meal is, is, is unknown. It's, it's hidden to the disciples, except for Peter and John here who know the location of the meal. Maybe it's to keep it away from Judas, who's about to betray Jesus. So, uh, because Jesus didn't want, to reveal, didn't want to reveal the location because he needed this meal. He wanted to have this meal with his disciples. This is how important this meal was. So much so, they only kept it to Peter and John for them to go and, and prepare for this Passover. But they didn't know. Like, well, where do you want us to do this? What do we need to do? So Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water, so specific, will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. And at this moment, we pause. And for Peter and John, who has followed Jesus for nearly three years at this point, do you think they're used to this? Right? Do you think they're used to Jesus just throwing these little nuggets, like the knowledge that he has, this infinite wisdom that he has, and they're shocked at this point of what Jesus knows and his power? Or is this just a common occurrence? Just go in, look for a man with a jar, and he'll lead you to this room. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I don't understand. Doesn't really make a lot, of, a lot of sense to me, but okay, let's do it because it seems like so automatic. Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. You see, whoever this man was with at the jar of water, we also see here the actions of Peter 
we learn here something about discipleship. We learn here something about what it means to follow Christ. We learn here that disciples make themselves available. And why does that cause us joy? Why does that give us joy this morning? This gives us joy because that means God has a purpose for you. For those of us that understand God, that see God, that seek God, that understand and know that every single day God has an opportunity and an assignment for you, that gives you purpose. You wake up every single day and ask, Lord, what is my assignment today? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to encounter? What is my assignment? What is my purpose? Disciples experience joy every single day from this purpose because we make ourselves available to this God that we follow. Disciples of Jesus make themselves available when God calls. When God says to talk to that person, you say, all right, let's do it. When is that moment where you're very busy, like I had this week, and your son or your daughter just wants that five seconds of attention. You're like, all right, God, let's do it. An opportunity at work or at school with a coworker or a colleague or a classmate, when God calls you to serve in a particular ministry, you say, all right, let's do it. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what this is going to take exactly, but God, you call. I'm going to make myself available to you. I'm going to find joy in this purpose that I have in the every single day. Because the call isn't for us to generate and to do great things, but the call is to be available so that God can do great things through you. It's to be available, to listen and be like, God, what is my assignment? What is my purpose? I'm going to make myself available to you like this man with, walking with a jar of water, like Peter and John who didn't ask another question and said, I'm going to do it. And I don't know how it's going to work out exactly. I don't have all the answers. I'm not really sure what's going to happen here. I might even be terrified at this moment. But because God calls, I'll be there. And notice, it's Peter and John. It's not just the thoughts of one person either. It wasn't like John's like, well, I think this is what God wants me to do. No, it's Peter and John together. God deliberately sends them out. And maybe on their way out, they're conversing with each other. Like, does that make sense to you? It's like, probably no. But you know what? We're going to believe in this Jesus. We're going to follow along with him. And why I mention that is because it's dangerous if you have an inkling of whether God is saying something to you specifically and no one else is hearing that. That God sends you out in pairs and if you have an inkling of, hey, this is where I'm hearing God speak into my life, don't just run off with it, but do speak with someone. Ask people around you because there's wisdom in the God-fearing Christians and the things that they have to say. We keep each other as a church on the path of following what this Jesus is saying and teaching us and calling us to. But there's this joy uh, that the disciples, they hurried off with in this preparation that they're about, preparation for this Last Supper because it took preparation. It took work. Peter and John would have had to buy an appropriate lamb without blemish, took it to the temple and have it sacrificed. They would take the lamb back along with the other ingredients that they needed, did a little bit of grocery shopping, and they had to cook and roast the lamb and prepare the table. There would be wine, unleavened bread, bitter herbs on the table that reminded the people taking in the meal, the Jewish people, the reminder of this long and bitter time of slavery that they had in Egypt, which God freed them from. I'm not going to go through every single point here, but there's actually 13 steps to the meal. 13 steps from the meal, as I took this from Bob Utley in his gospel according to Luke, and there's actually four cups of wine, which you might be asking in this text, why Jesus is picking up so many cups. But the cup that we normally refer to is, is the, the, the third cup. 
uh, K there. Third cup of the wine after the washing of, of hands. That here Jesus, like that Peter and John were preparing this meal for the Passover lamb that Jesus is about to lead. And it's deliberate. It took action. It took a lot of care. And they went forth and prepared everything as they were called to do. Without question. Because I'm a disciple and there's joy in this purpose and in this, in this, in this assignment that Jesus gives. The challenge, it's tough because people are out to get them at that moment. So do you think they were, they were wanting to go into the market and buying things? And people are like, hey, isn't this a disciple of Jesus? You know, isn't this the troublemaker? Isn't this Peter and John? You think the conversations that were going, but they risked their lives and their reputation and they went forth. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. A few points here. A little wordplay that Jesus has. I've eagerly desired to eat this pasha or Passover with you before I pasho, which means suffer. I've desired so eagerly to have this Passover with you before I suffer that I need to have this fellowship, this last communion, this last representative, uh, this re- last, uh, this, this, this part, uh, this, rep- that, this meal that represents the kingdom of God that I'm ushering in together. It's so important that we have this meal together. And I will not eat it again. I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment. Until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What does this mean? Jesus is about to say the Passover that you have experienced that we're celebrating here. Just wait till I suffer and I go on the cross and I once and for all have the sacrifice. There will be no more Passover sacrifices needed ever after what I'm about to do. Because I'm going to free you forever. My sacrifice will be enough for you. It will be enough for you. That's why as disciples we have this joy because of what Jesus has done for us. That it's enough to break the chains of bondage. The chains that we're suffering. Whatever it is that we're wrestling through. Jesus has the power and the strength to overcome whatever it is that you're going through. Whatever it is. So he took the bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after, and in the same way, after, oh, maybe he's not there. And in the same way, uh, after uh, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. As we slow down here a little bit, a few things, again, a few points that we notice. This is, this is so packed. I'm not doing it justice. <laughs> you have to read this slowly for yourself. We're called to remember what Jesus has done. And we're called to know that what he has done is for you. He says that twice. He took the bread and he took the cup. This is the body and this is the cup. That is what? For you. For you. It's not just for someone else, though it is as well. But it's for you. It's personal disciples we have this joy because we see jesus sacrifice as personal it's not just for someone out there but it's for you and for me it's for us he thought of us 
on the cross. When he was breaking that bread and, break, and, and holding that cup up that day, he was thinking of us here today as well. I want you to experience this new life. I want you to know this joy. I want you to come into my kingdom and experience the goodness I have. And it's different, right? When you receive a personal invite to a dinner or to a party, as Pastor Howard preached a few weeks ago, you've all received an invitation to a meal with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But the question is, do you realize that it's a personal invite for you? Have you accepted and responded to this invitation that God has given? Because we'll never personally live out our faith for Christ if we never believe he personally died for us. It's, it's for us, it's a call for you today. That it wasn't just someone, it's you with your name written on his heart and in his hands, pierced, piercing his sides. He did all of that for you and for me. It was a personal call. And we'll never live out this faith. We'll never experience this joy fully if we never know that this is personal. Right? Like on the, on the street, when someone hands out an invite, you've been invited to this party, you don't really think it's me that's invited, right? It's everyone. You're just giving this out to everyone. But no, we see here that it's for you. That God in his grace, God in his foreknowledge, God in his goodness knew you before you were born, knew what you need before you even needed it. God loved you so much that he wanted to take care of you before you even knew the needs and the wants that you have. See, at this point, in John's account of, this last, of the Last Supper, at this point, Jesus would have already washed the disciples' feet as they entered into this meal. Washing the disciples' feet is a sign of humility and is a sign of service uh, to them. And before Jesus reveals someone will betray him, Jesus already knows who it is, right? He's not saying, you know, I, I'm just surprised at this moment. I don't know who it was. He's always known. And before he even told them who it is, he already washed the feet of Jesus, the person that's about to betray him. He already served him communion. He already gave him his, his lot and his peace, saying that you are still loved. And do you ever wonder why that is? Like, why does Jesus wash the feet of Judas, even though he knows that he's about to betray him? I hope you've been noticing through this series here that everything that God does, it's really through grace. It's really through love, that this act of this meal, this invitation, is yet another invitation for Judas to repent. An invitation for him to say, at this very last moment, you're about to do what you're about to do, but I've given you so many opportunities to come clean, to confess, to come before me, to cry out and say, here are the ways that I have gone wrong. Here are the ways that I have fallen away from you. But Jesus, again, says, I'm going to have a meal, wash your feet. I'm giving you another opportunity to come clean, to come before me. But we see here, Judas doesn't. Judas still keeps it to himself. And we can't say that Jesus hasn't given opportunity. We can't say that God hasn't reached out to people and said that, hey, I love you, I know you, I want this relationship for you. You have been given this invitation to be in my kingdom. We see here Judas at the very end still is responsible. The disciples, even though we know that God is sovereign, as disciples, we are still responsible and accountable to our actions. So here they blur burst it out into question. In, into question. There's that passage. <laughs> in, that, in that question, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who could do this. So a dispute, they broke out, which Da Vinci painted. 
For us also a, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them called themselves benefactor. This word for benefactor, you might be wondering what that means. It's a title of honor uh, given to someone who has done a great service for the country. So here we say that here the kings of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. When they exercise authority, they're given this title of benefactor that they're serving their country. But you, but you, disciple of Jesus, you're not like that. Because you don't serve this kingdom, you serve the kingdom of God. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I, Jesus, am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, I give unto you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's this joy as disciples that that's uncomparable to the ways of the world because our joy doesn't come from the ways of the world. It doesn't come from titles and accolades, but it comes from who this Jesus is. There's this joy in disciples of Christ during this season that even though we might not be promoted, even though we might not be in the upper ranks of society, that there's this joy because disciples, we know and we understand to be great is to be like Jesus. To be great is to be like Jesus. Disciples understand true greatness is to be like Jesus and his serving in his humility, not to climb the ladder, not to accumulate wealth and possessions, not to be among the social elite. Jesus is saying, don't seek the titles of honor the world looks to give to you. Even though you don't have that, you can still have this bottomless joy that comes from the kingdom because God is the one that's going to crown you one day. God is the one that's going to give you the title and the honor and the fame and the worth that you are looking for, that your soul needs, that can ultimately, ultimately only be satisfied in our relationship with God. I'm going to confer on to you a kingdom. It's not what, I, not what the world says that's most important. It's what I say, as Jesus is saying here. To be great is to be like Jesus. And Jesus' point here is that a servant, a servant doesn't argue about who's greatest because a servant knows they're the least. And there's a satisfaction and a contentment in that. They, a servant knows that they're the least. They don't, they don't argue and try to fight their ways to the top. So for us, as Jesus followers and lovers, and you're walking, you're thinking you haven't been respected and you haven't been given the titles of the world and people don't recognize your, your, uh, what you have done and your gifting. And I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate those things. We should encourage each other. But I want to say to you today that, today that God knows you. That God knows you. God knows your heart. God see, sees you for who you are. That as disciples, we love like Jesus. As disciples, we are selfless like Jesus. As disciples, we care like Jesus and we serve like Jesus. And Jesus sees that. He knows that and he's going to give you what your soul needs. That is the, where our joy comes from. This morning, especially during this Christmas season. I like what John Stott says uh, in his book, uh, Christian Mission in the Modern World. We're sent into the world like Jesus to serve, for this is the natural expression of our love for our neighbors. We love, we go, and we serve. 
that our worth and our satisfaction and our fulfillment is not in the words of man, but it's from the words of Christ, that we are filled by him, and because of that, we go off and we serve people. And then the attention turns from the disciples to Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Uh, you here, I want need to point that out. Simon, Simon, though Jesus is speaking to Simon, the word for you is actually plural. So he's talking to all the disciples at that moment. That Satan is out to get all of the disciples. He's out to get all, all of them. Uh, and he says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Don't you love that? The Lord of the universe is praying for his disciples. He's praying for, pe- for, for Peter. There's this joy for us as we live out our every single day. Whatever task is at, at hand, however terrified you are of that conversation, of that presentation, of that exam, of what's going on in your life, that we know there's a Father in heaven that cares about us and knows us and is praying for us. And he does not want you to fail, even though the world might want you to fail that he is still for you, that he is with you. How awesome is that? That that is what our joy is based out of. But he replied, that's Peter, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. As disciples, even though we understand true greatness is to be like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, we have to understand as well, just like we see here in Peter, that a disciple's greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness. As disciples, our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness. What do I mean by this? Well, you might think about, have you ever, if you had interviews in, for a job, they would have asked you, hey, They've asked me before, Doug, what is your greatest weakness, right? Uh, you know, what is your greatest weakness? And I say, oh, my greatest weakness is that I'm too humble. You know, like, you know, I'm too humble. My greatest weakness is that I'm a perfectionist, so I work too hard. Uh, <laughs> you know, in an interview, you try to spin something that's seen as a negative to a positive, right? That's how we, we do it. We play that game. We spin, spin our weaknesses into our strengths. But the truth is, most of the time, they're not actually weaknesses, but as the Harvard Business Review they, uh, school, they call it, what they call it, they call these angelic weaknesses, right? We, make, we kind of make these things up to make ourselves look better. And a professor at Harvard, he says, during my interviews with people for our business school or for our work, I, I tell them straight up to be real with me. Let's have real talk. And sometimes they are real, but sometimes they don't get it and they keep putting up this front. And he says in his article, he spends the rest of his interview trying to peel off this layer, these layers, and then he wrote in his, in his interview, I often leave the interview wondering, who was that person I just talked to? And the worst thing he comes to realize is that I'll never know because they'll never get the job. Here we see that sometimes for us, we, we have to press into our weaknesses, but we have to know our weaknesses as well. We have to understand what our weaknesses are, and we boast in them, as the Apostle Paul says, and we bring that before God, and we are upfront with them. But I want to urge us and make us think about perhaps you think about you're like, I don't have any weaknesses, but maybe your weakness is in your strength, is in the gifting, in, in the good things that God has given you. Abraham's greatest strength was in his faith, but we see it is in his faith that he failed later on. He's known for his faith, but he's failed in his faith when he went to Egypt and he lied about his wife not being 
a Sarah. Moses' greatest strength was his meekness. Yet he lost his temper, and he spoke rashly from his lips, and he was not allowed into his promise land. His greatest strength was his meekness, but out of his, that meekness, he bursted forth, and that was his weakness. Peter here was so confident. That was his strength. That was his strength. He was so confident. Like Peter was so brave, but it was in this moment later on that he failed in his courage. Right when the people asked him, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? That's exactly where he failed, that our greatest strength could be the place where we fall. Maybe you're really personable, and that is your strength. But that is also your weakness, but it's taking away all the time away from you, from what is most needed that you need to do at that moment. Maybe you love serving, but that's, lead, that's also your weakness because that's going to lead to burnout. I'm not sure what it is, but that's what your strength is could be your greatest weakness, the place of your falling. Maybe you could do a lot of things. You're a Renaissance man or woman, and that is going to be your weakness and your downfall away from your relationship with God. But we see here, Jesus ends the section of text saying to his disciples, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Disciples know, and we have this joy, that even though we have the strength, we have these weaknesses, and we might fall, Jesus has given us everything that we need to live this life, to live a life of faith. And he said to them, but now if you have a purse taken and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is, is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. You might be thinking here, is Jesus leading rebellion? No, after this text in the garden, Jesus says, I'm not. Put down your sword, Peter. This is not what I'm doing. So what is Jesus saying here? Many commentaries say that he's speaking metaphorically, that Jesus is saying that a time is coming, that what I'm about to do on the cross, man, you guys are going to live a hard life because of you Jesus followers, you're going to say you belong to me, and the world is going to hate you for that. So you better go and sell your cloak and get, prepare yourself in that way, not physically, literally getting a sword, but prepare yourselves with this mentality that it's a war out there, spiritually speaking, that every single day that there's a war for your soul and that you, the moment you let go, that you're going to fall down. But no, you disciple of Christ, you know what God is calling you to. And he says that's enough. A literal translation is actually, that's not a really good translation. A literal translation is enough of this kind of talk. So he's actually rebuking what was, you know, see, here are two swords. And he's like, enough of this kind. You don't get it. <laughs> you don't get what I'm saying. You know, in a day, in a time such as today, as a church, there's so much that can steal our joy, and maybe that's you today. During the season of Advent, there's so much that can steal our joy. That you're serving and you're tired. That you have high standard, standards of right and wrong, and you see the unrighteousness happening around, and that's tiring you out that you're carrying this burden and you're feeling this joylessness during this season, I'm hoping today that we would remember this Christ who has given us so much, that he loved you enough that this God in the universe will come down in the form of a baby, in the form of a man, to live a life and die for you. 
so that we can have this new life. We're still called to remember what Jesus has done to give us this joy that we so desire today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this joy that comes from you. And I pray, Lord, for all of us during this season that are desiring this joy, that is just a little bit tired, that is finding it hard to experience this joy. God, we pray that joy will burst forth in our spirit now. For those of us that are tired, for those of us that are hurting, for those of us that are weary and wandering and just, just thinking, God, I don't know what's going on in my life right now. Lord, may we be reminded of who you are, that we are known, that we are loved, that we are cherished, that you thought of us before we thought of you. That remembering Jesus today, may it spark this joy inside of us to know that we are so loved as we walk out from this place, that we are so known, that you have a purpose and assignment for us every single day. And may that give us strength to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.